Great. So I'm here with Jed and Craig again, and we're gonna, I guess, just talk about stuff. <laughs> we got a few things on the agenda, but I think we're gonna start off. Jed, you were saying that you had some other thoughts on garments going off our last yes. conversation. So. Yeah, I was I was thinking about it um, in the context of um, the series that Nate Heil and I are doing on um, Revelation, right? And um, one of the images that came, comes through in Revelation is that, that the people entering the kingdom of those who have had their garments washed clean by the blood of the lamb, right? Um, and it connected to something I had... Um, I had read in, um, here, I'll go ahead and pull the book here. I, I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with Margaret Barker, um, but this book here is called Temple Mysticism. Margaret Barker is kind of a very interesting independent scholar in, in Great Britain um, that writes mostly on um, like the theology surrounding the temple and the temple mysticism. She's done some work in um, uh, the Apocalypse of John as well, but she's mostly the Old Testament scholar and the intertestamental, you know, Judaism, early Christianity, kind of that's where, where her studies lead her. But one of the things she had pulled out, and I didn't even think about it until, you know, a little bit earlier this, this afternoon was um, that Adam and Eve, and this is a fairly common motif, is that um, when they found themselves naked after eating the fruit, it's because they had lost their garments of light, right? So they, they had lost their garments and, um, kind of in the apocalyptic Judaism prior to Christianity, um, there was a sense where the image of God was not destroyed when Adam and Eve fell, right? But that they did lose the glory, right? So they, they lost their glory, but the image remained. And so the um, that image then that we were talking about in our previous conversation from uh, Matthew 22 about, um, you know, the entrance into the kingdom is depicted in this wedding banquet. Everybody was invited. The multitudes respond. They come in, but one person gets kicked out because they're not wearing the proper garment, right? And so they get kicked out of the party. I was like, oh, I think, I, I really think that like what that might be pointing to is kind of in that, those apocalyptic or eschatological garments, the, 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 the first glory that is like the second, that is the same as the second glory. And um, that they're clothed with that. They're, they've been clothed, they've been washed clean by, by, by the blood of the lamb. Um, I apologize, let me go ahead and put that on. Um, so they've been washed clean by the blood of the lamb. So they're, they're, they're re-robed in the glory of God. And, um, and I think like what, what you get a sense of is that both in Eden and in um, in the New Jerusalem, and then I think in this parable in Matthew 22, um, are talking about the matching between the internal and the external state, right? So whatever is on the outside is reflective then of what is on the inside. And that is a kind of a marker of restoration and renewal like the inner and the outer man had been renewed kind of thing. And so I think that there was a connection there. I was just curious what you guys thought of that. I actually have a lot of thoughts on this sort of, uh, I get kind of weird on it too, but um, so there is- And actually, I'm, I'm eating right now too. I apologize, I'm eating my snack here. So I'm gonna, I'll be listening and I'll be popping off camera just so that people don't have to see you me. You should make sure you keep oh, that on, 
unmuted so he can hear the, the mouth noises. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, it was after our talk too that I was reading through John in um, uh, the Gospel of John, and it says, "For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth and comes to the light, uh, comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they've been done in God." And so what I was saying to Mitch was, I was like, "There's just this level of exposure and like vulnerability and nakedness, kind of like we were talking about." And it's like even if even if your deeds were bad, uh, when you come to God in like repentance, seeking forgiveness, it's like you're, you're willingly approaching the light, exposing yourself in a way that you'll be clothed in light, um, trusting that the light will clothe, clothe you. So there's a verse in Job where he says, um, uh, when a man does wrong, like he should turn, basically saying something like he should turn to his fellow neighbors and brothers and say, I've sinned and I've done wrong and it did not profit me. So there's a way kind of like, if you're, actively willingly engaging in bad deeds you want to clothe yourself in darkness but when even if your past deeds were bad and you're seeking repentance and forgiveness it's like even those you're willing to expose and it's like this uh you're you're coming naked so that way you can be clothed in light in a way and so there's so i thought that was kind of interesting i think it goes exactly with what you're saying in the um i don't know there's just stuff throughout the the scriptures where it seems like that's kind of what it's getting at clothing yourself in light like when jesus goes up on the mountain transfiguration and his clothing is white um basically he looks like an angel like the priests if you read the priest garments that when god gives them to the priests in exodus it's very similar to angels like the fine linen so it would reflect back white and everything and all that oh man you gotta read you gotta read barker yeah and it's just it's, it's really interesting because you were even mentioning like the new temple and everything. And what it, what my mind always goes to is uh, I can read the, these parts from Ezekiel because it's talking about the new temple. And for some reason, like there's certain things in the Bible where like I read them and for some reason I'll read things historically. And then certain things like, I don't know, my mind will just shift and I like will never, it's like I all of a sudden read it like metaphysically or something. I don't know how you say it spiritually. Um, but this part, it just reminded me of, um, it reminds me of the garden too after the fall, but uh, I can say why. And it's, so it's verse Ezekiel 44, verse 17. And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments. No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They, not, they shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court of the people, they shall take off their garments in which they ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. They sh um, and then, uh, let's see, there was another part too where it kind of, I think it repeats it, one of the same words. Well, maybe I passed over it. Um, oh yeah. But there they shall leave their garments in which they minister for they are holy. They shall put on other garments. Then they may approach uh, that which is for the people. Um, so you kind of just this image, the reason it reminds me of the garden, because after the fall, God says in the sweat of your brow, you're going to toil. And so he's saying there, like, you shouldn't clothe yourself with anything that causes sweat. And for some reason, when I read that passage, it just reminds me of the weird, like entertaining angels part in Hebrews, where it's like, uh, like you have these heavenly beings that can appear in the form of men or something like they're almost taking a different form. Uh, but when they're 
in their heavenly form, they're clothed in light and they don't actually, uh, and then coming when they come to, yeah, this is where I said it gets kind of weird. This is probably just my weird, like strange thoughts on it. But when the, if you were to meet an angelic beating in this life, they would probably just look like a person because they're clothing themselves in that, which causes sweat in order to, uh, encounter the people or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> probably being too weird. Uh, no, I, I would be even weirder than that if she okay. doesn't want me to go there. Yeah, let's see. Let's hear it. Um, I think that there's a, like, based on just some of the writings of especially Sergei Bulgakov, and it was we're reading through, um, like, Revelation 4 and 5, I think there's a very strong argument to be made that uh, angels and humans share a common nature. I, I wanted to ask you about that with relation to Barker. How do you, how would you connect, how would you describe the relationship between approaching the temple or approaching the inner parts of the temple with uh, the shared aspects or the shared natures? Right. Like, That's a good, so you, maybe you've read Barker before then, Craig. Are you cheating? Know, <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm asking. I, I suspect you know a lot more about Barker than I do. It's not a trick question. No, 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 no I, I know. I'm, I'm having fun. Um, the, uh, yeah, so, uh, what Barker brings out um, based on both a, a really close reading of the, um, the especially Pentateuch, so the, the temple texts or tabernacle texts in the Pentateuch, so Leviticus, uh, then into the temple texts in uh, First Kings and in uh, Second Kings and in Chronicles, right? Temple is second, no, First Kings. Temple is in First Kings, right? Um, when the when the high priest goes into the holy of holies, right, which is representative of day one of creation, where things exist in a primal unity, right, and that's where the angels exist as well, but that you're going beyond the veil, right? Well, in order to go beyond the veil, it required death, right, which is why the sacrificial animals, you know, um, were had to be slaughtered before the high priest could enter in. And he takes off his wool, the wool portions of his garment, the ones that are woven with the same material as the veil of the Holy of Holies is his outer vestment. He has to go down to his inner vestment, which is the linen, right? And so he is sacramentally dead as he passes through the veil, right? And when the, um, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the high priest becomes an angel of the Lord. Elaborate. You said you said he's sacramentally dead when he enters through the veil. Yeah, it's to to no mortal can go into the inner presence of God, right? So you are in your immortal or angelic form when you're in when you're beyond when you're beyond the veil. What right? do you mean by sacramentally dead? Um. Well, because the pre like. Physically, the priest has not actually died passing through the veil. Now, our high priest, Jesus, did die to pass through the veil. But to say sacramentally is just to say that the, the sacramental act of the sacrifice signifies the death of the priest, right, before he enters into the Holy of Holies. Um, and then he's also bringing the death of the people into the Holy of Holies as well. Mm. And that's being that the sins are the toning work is sanctifying from death and from unholiness of all kinds. Right. Um, but and this is really strongly attested in like the Enochic literature where Enoch goes into the heavenly holy of holies, which is really cool if you've read some of those portions in, in Enoch. Um, 
and he becomes an angel, right? He becomes the, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Metatron is the, in some of the Enochic texts, which are later, but, you know, it's such a cool, yeah, it's definitely a metal name for sure. Yeah. Uh, but he becomes an angel, right? Um, it, even like um, the uh, early Christians, without diminishing Christ's divinity, would call him the, the angel of our salvation, right? And that, that's because, not because they thought of him as like a lower God, but because he had he had fulfilled that priestly role and had gone into the Holy of Holies and taken on his angelic form. And so when the priest comes back out of the, um, back out from within the veil to outside of the veil, he is an angel of the Lord, a representative or a messenger of the Lord, um, there to, um, you know, impart teaching, instruction, and, uh, you know, and then also to, um, oversee worship, right? And so they, it kind of has like that's the role of the priest. And so even in the um, you know even in like the Old Testament and intertestamental literature, the, there was a permeability between the humanity and the and the human and the angelic world, right? Or you know the visitors that Abraham has, uh, you know his three visitors, right? They come to him in human form. Right. So I think it reinforces the point that you're making, Jason. So when I'm saying like, yeah, I think the angels are human. I don't think I'm actually saying anything that the scriptures aren't actually saying. Mm -hmm. It's just that dimensionally they're different, right. From a different dimension than the seen realm that we are in and uh, not bound to mortality, at least not in the same way that we are. Um, and so I may even tie into some of the other things you want to discuss, but no, that would mean that the angels are not immutable, that they're not beyond change. They're not even infallible. Like if we get into Paul, like Paul is very hard on the angelic powers in, in, uh, in multiple places. So it doesn't seem like he's discriminating between good angels and bad angels. He's, he's calling their competency and their management of the cosmos into question and saying that Christ comes to set us free from, from the mismanagement of the archons, right? So at least a certain classification that we might call angels. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's... in a way, like I would say, like you're you're looking at like an angelic divine humanity all the way up and all the way down to creation as a result of the incarnation. I know those are all really big statements, but I'd be willing to unpack them if, if necessary. No, I'm, I'm tracking with you. I, uh, it yeah. makes sense to me. I would... Um, like, I like the idea of, of, um, that, you know, like an angel, I guess it's, it's hard to think not too materialistically about it, but the idea of like actual heavenly body or whatever, the angel actually coming in human form. Cause you hear stories about that where people be like, this person helped me fix my flat tire. Then I turn around and he was gone. And it's like, and they have this sense that it was an angel or something. I'm like, those stories are cool. I like those too. But then there's also the other sense where, uh, just an actual person, could be an angel and i think there's like mm -hmm. there's a good a, it's good to be aware of that too or like god could be speaking through somebody you you talk to every day and they could be coming like as as in that in that way of using angel as just like a messenger from from carrying a divine truth from the heavens or something within them and so that could be i mean that could be your child even that could say that could be yeah, just anybody you encounter on the earth too. 
Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, and I think there's like, you know, in certain mystical Christian schools, like, um, and you get into like maybe some of the anthroposophy, the Christian anthroposophy of like Rudolf Steiner, those, those concepts show up again in a little bit of a different pattern. Um, you know, but I think that there's even some valid arguments to how that might connect to the concept of guardian angels. Um, and, uh, you know, like that we all, in a sense, have an angelic form as well. So in a sense, yes, every human is potentially, at least in some way, could actualize that angelic nature and become a messenger of God, which is what an angel actually is, right? Yeah, so what, what would you say if somebody was suspicious at this point in the conversation where they said, this sounds kind of new agey, how would you, how would you reinforce that claim that about the shared nature between humans and angels, or how would Barker do it? Barker probably doesn't get too much into like the actual much into the metaphysics because she's more of an exegete of scripture, right? So you're not going to get like a strong um, argument there. But I, if I was to reduce it in a really simple way, I mean, there's there's very complicated ways to describe this. Um, but I think it all relates to the incarnation, right? Is that the creator of uh, and the and the binding reality in which all creation is like Paul would put in uh, what is that in Ephesians one I believe that all creation is recapitulated in Christ right that he is the logos of all creation that's a human being right and so a a human person is responsible for all that is seen and unseen. And that that is the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So it's not like you can abstract humanity away from Jesus in some sort of pre-incarnate state that's already, in some sense, present in Jesus always, right? And so I think that, like, when we're looking at the broad picture of, uh, when we're looking at the nature of what is a human and what is an angel and what is creation, well, you know, like scientists have a funny way of calling that just, they call it the anthropic principle, right? Or fine tuning of the universe. It appears that it was made in such a way that is conducive to human beings. Well, why would that be? Well, maybe, maybe because we have a human creator, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, it, it seems to boggle the mind because we're not used to thinking in that way. But my argument would just simply be based on the fact that we worship an incarnate creator. And so creation, I believe, will in at every level, top to bottom, bear the marks of that incarnation and bear the image of that incarnation. So he is microcosmically and macrocosmically uh, creation is his body, hmm. which he is to, it, to which he is to be wedded in nuptial bliss. Right. All right. I've been persuaded. So um, there's a, there's tighter metaphysical things you could do to, to demonstrate that. But I think it's just like at the simple level, that's a pretty decent way to say like, Hey, yeah, it does sound new agey and it's really weird. Mm -hmm. And I could get weirder, but backing up and saying like, no, that's, you know, that's where we, you know, that's where we come from. We come from a human creator. Mm -hmm. And I say that 
you know, unblinkingly because I worship Jesus. <laughs> is there a I way to? Like we were... oh, sorry, go ahead. You go, Jason. No, no, not you. Okay. I was just wondering, I is see. there a way this, like, this makes, I mean, sense to me and I'm on board with it all. I'm just wondering if there's a way you could even describe what you're saying to like a skeptical atheist or would you describe it the same way or, 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 or would, I would you i would expect i would expect a, like a really intelligent skeptical atheist to just think it's total hogwash okay <laughs> but i i think it doesn't mean that the argument itself isn't is incoherent yeah um, yeah you know like but I, I in terms of the burden of proof like i don't like getting into the proof side of that i'm less concerned about yeah yeah maybe just because that's not the where my mind goes in terms of do I need to prove or disprove this? It's like, well, uh, where where does the spiritual or metaphysical logic kind of where you know follow the thread, you know, the, the causal and logical chain yeah, on yeah. some of the and it seems like if the Christian claims are true, a claim that humans and angels share a common nature, finite created nature, that's what we hold in common. All right. They may have a different taxonomy or, you know, different morphology or, you know, you can, as you're getting into, you know, kind of the, um, the morphological classification of being, you know, um, yeah, they, they can have some difference from us, but that's only because there's still a more prior fundamental unity. Mm -hmm. I, I get the, sometimes we're talking about, um, Kind of thematic aspects or interpretations that are viable and sometimes you get the sense man this is a really really viable strong association um, the, this one seems less so it's a little more a little looser to me mm -hmm. um, I, I felt like we were really in a good neighborhood in a fruitful neighborhood when we were talking about the the garments in relationship to the different layers of the mm -hmm. temple mm -hmm. uh, uh, Something specific on my mind when we were talking about that was the one, the shedding of the garments wasn't something that I had an appreciation for mm -hmm. before this conversation. But there's that you have this room where it's the room with the, the fire burning. Mm -hmm. You know, something. I wonder what you guys make of this because this is kind of. Um, and it's related to a dying. You you likened it to Christ dying on the cross, uh, or I, maybe you would have said that that was the veil. But uh, there's a correspondence, at least in my mind, to this middle room, to like, this place of suffering, or this place of before the dying. Uh, what do you make of that? It's hmm. a really good question. My mind was kind of going in a few different directions. Can you, um, yeah, I mean, maybe Jason, you could take a crack at it or just kind of go back. So you're, over saying this, you're saying the place of the place before the holiest of holies is like a place of kind of like suffering in a sense. Uh, I don't know. I, I, the way like, I was like thinking of it too. The temple structure. So the, the best way I, I see what you're saying. I think, to put that into a temple structure, I'm not sure how that would map, but I'm not. It could just be because I'm missing something too. Um, but the temple structure kind of is um, 
holy of holies, holy place than the outer sanctuary, right? Um, and so the holy of holies kind of is, is a certain kind of holiness that is both intrinsically holy and can make other things holy, right? You get out into the holy, holy, right? And so, and then you get out into the holy place where the worship is really, for most part, the worship is happening within the inner and outer courts, right? And so kind of the, the correspondence, like at the inner part of the, if the inner sanctum of the temple is kind of corresponding to the spirit, the inner court, which is to correspond to the soul, the outer court to the body kind of thing, is that the outer courts are passively holy. That means they have to receive holiness. And then you have kind of this middle space where the holy place, the inner place is intrinsically holy, but can be defiled and therefore needs to be cleansed as well. Right. So the implements in the temple have to be cleansed in the inner and outer courts. Sin has to be atoned for. Um, but the Holy of Holies is of, of, of such a holiness that that which comes into contact with it is made holy, right? And so that's why the ritual is, the atonement ritual takes place in the Holy of Holies. And so um, in a sense, there's suffering throughout the whole equation, right? Because there's blood sacrifice involved in the inner, in the inner, well, in the outer court, the inner court and the inner sanctum, right? And so, um that moment of suffering yeah i mean i think it's there i i just I, i'm not sure how i would describe that but that's just because i haven't really hasn't occurred to me to think about that before i keep picturing i'm like everest a mountain or something it's kind of like the peak I'm of glad. it is that what you were thinking craig too or well for maybe for different reasons go on i i want to i want to piggyback on what you're saying well i think i I, uh, that just kind of lays out in my head this way a lot too like the the more you're going into the temple is like the more you're kind of climbing Everest so you're continually like if you start at the base if you were at the beach or something it's like you know uh, everybody can go to the beach it's like no big deal that you go there relaxed like there's uh you just kind of can get drunk do whatever party on the beach and then um but then as you keep going up the mountain it's like then you get to when he was talking about the the outer court or whatever or the, it kind of reminded me of like maybe like base camp or something then you get up there and there's like more dedicated people more like they like okay we've put aside these things at least for a time because we're we've got this one purpose we're all going towards and then the, when you get up to the peak it's just like it's just you and god and you've basically given everything to get there uh shed all i mean of course you're gonna have a coat on but you know what i mean like you're dropping all the weight kind of trying to get to the top of the mountain and then it's just so all you're dropping all those garments of skin, all that stuff, just to get to this, this peak, this top of the mountain where it's just you in the heavens with God or something like that. That's kind of where my mind was going. Um, I don't know if that's even helpful or. Uh... Yeah, no, no, no. I, the, the, you know, the reason that imagery came to mind for me was because of St. Ephraim's vision of paradise where it's, you have the garden as this mountain basically where at the top you have. Uh, you have the tree of life and this is you know jason you and i had a conversation where we talked about how that imagery corresponds to the tolkien image of minas tirith this white city with the, the tree of life at the top but yeah which is an echo of the older valinor yeah of the original yeah and, well and i mean think if you think about it like i mean there's probably a lot of ways to 
productively come up with with connections to temple theology because the temple was basically viewed as the cosmos in miniature right mm -hmm. um so it was it was supposed to kind of point um uh, in a in a visible way to the manner in which god is present in everything uh, yeah yeah right and so um yeah and yeah he was very productive ways to kind of address that that suffering question of like what you know what does the suffering entail before you pass through the veil um mm -hmm. and in a sense it might be like the suffering could be experienced in the groaning sense of romans 8 of a creation groaning under the futility of sin right is that groaning is like the the holy place that is awaiting its uh repristination right and it's it, it's it's uh reconciliation to the to the same kind of holiness that comes from the holy of holies and so i think that like yeah there's a lot of suffering in the temple <laughs> the temple signifies a lot of suffering you know it just in the whole sacrificial system you know what i don't have enough literacy to talk about is if i was if i was orthodox i would know this but i've heard orthodox people talk about the structure of Maybe it's the structure of the, the temple, but they'll they'll use these are terms that are not native to me. The the narthex and the nave. Mm -hmm. Are you guys familiar with these words? Mm -hmm. And how the the narthex is the place where one of these one of these regions is where there's images, there's sculptures of gargoyles or demons. Mm -hmm. I don't know. What do you what do you know? What do you guys know about this? There's a whole field of studies in that actually, as far as like how, um, you know, all the way back to kind of Byzantine era in early, you know, early post-Constantinian area church building, all the way in through medieval Western uh, cathedral architecture is that all of these are in some ways um, recapitulating the temple, right? And so the structure of the churches, even though the building structure is different in a sense, it's it's like um, it's a deconstructed and reconstructed temple, you know. Um, so, um, like the iconostasis in the um, you know in the triptychs, and and the, you can have you know you have the veil, you have the altar, in in most traditional churches, um, and a lot of churches will face east, just like the temple, just like the holy of holies is facing east. So the entrance to the church is facing east, and th there's all kinds of there's all kinds of ways that temple architecture and church architecture historically, now not necessarily like in your, you know, uh, church that's, you know, in the converted strip mall down the street wouldn't necessarily, um, at least immediately in, in, in an apparent way, um, be that wouldn't necessarily be visible. But the the early church builders, as far as for the physical buildings, um. uh you know the church buildings i'm sorry i've just got work phone going on the church buildings are definitely tied into temple architecture and they were self-consciously doing that and there's actually barker gets into some of that in her works um and it's because the temple mysticism of of um you know of um pre-christian judaism is picked up within early christianity and it's carried on 
uh, in, in a distinctly Christian way, but it's definitely they're they're pulling and drawing off of those themes. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anything about that. I mean, I've heard Peugeot talk about it a little, I think, with the gargoyles and stuff like that, but I'm mm -hmm. not familiar with the mm -hmm. narthex and the nave and things like that. Well, the, just the word narthex is pretty rad. Yeah. Yeah. It's got know. some cool edges to it that you can hang on to. Yeah, I like what you mentioned about the the receiving the pattern of the temple as like a cosmic image in a sense too. And he receives it on uh, like the, what'd you say, the, the mountain of paradise. Like he receives it on the mountain of God in a sense. Moses goes up um, after, basically, I mean, basically it sounds to me like he sheds all his garments, like 40 days of no eating and drinking. It's like, you're just putting it all down. Like you're not partaking of anything. Like all the garments of skin are just kind of uh, being diminished. I don't know if he can really put them off, but they're being diminished in a way. Um, and then, I don't know, it's really, it's fascinating. And then even with the Garden of Eden, like Adam being created, and then I think it's the genealogy of Luke, it says he's the son of God. So he's like mm -hmm. created that way. And then in Ezekiel, which I know is always tied to Satan, but I'm like, it sounds to me like it could have been referring to Adam as well. Um, it when most certainly it most most likely be it that text in ezekiel like the king of tyre text mm -hmm. right um is was almost certainly um damaged in transmission because um, it like sounds like he's describing a priest like it's exactly what he's describing yeah yeah it's the same clothing the priests wear except he's just trying describing an angelic form which makes me think of adam yeah. in the garden or something so Barker has a very, yeah, she has an extended argument that essentially like the, um, the priests believe that like the Edenic fall was mirrored as the priestly fall um, in the temple, right? So the priests were the guardians of Eden and in the temple destruction and, and it, there's more to it that she unpacks, but she mm. makes the case that 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 text specifically, just in terms of if you go into like the Septuagint translation and some of the older manuscript evidence, there are some pretty wild variants textually from the Masoretic text that we have today, which, you know, Masoretic text is 11th century BC or AD, like common era type stuff. And so it's it's a it's a re it's it's an older ancient text translation right but it's textual family but there's other textual families that point to something that's more priestly um and even the connection with the king of tyre um you know there is a temple connection there between um the phoenicians and solomon when he's building the temple and yeah and, um, that's another it, one barker makes the argument that essentially the like it looks like the oldest an earliest manuscript evidence points toward this is just depicting a priestly fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so in some ways, I mean, you know, you have to get into the question of dating of when, you know, when are the, you know, when is the Eden narrative being composed in its final form? You know, um, you know, some people are going to put that into the time of Moses and some people are going to put that at later times. Um, but I'm comfortable. I mean, 
even though I'm fine with reading the Bible at a critical level, I'm comfortable saying that, you know, I also think that, you know, there's probably a real Adam, a real historical Adam or some sort of equivalent, right? And that that textual tradition is arising out of, you know, a real history. Um, but the, in a sense, the way that the Eden text is being framed, it is also depicting the loss of the temple, the destruction of the temple and the fall of the priestly class and their inability to um, keep the temple from being defiled and themselves from being defiled. That's fascinating. So I want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly. It sounds like what you're saying to me is that the writers of this passage about that we now see as a depiction of Lucifer was was about the role of the priests and the, the fall of the temple? It would appear that there's at least so like the breastplate like typically like so what's interesting is it's it's a somewhat approximation of the high priestly breastplate but the stones and the arrangement have been turned around mm. in older text families like that is actually the 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 stones represented correspond to the stone to the breastplate of the priest of the high priest right but i mean if you're you know if you're a later if you're making a later redaction that's trying to uphold like the integrity of the priesthood you wouldn't want a text that necessarily reflects badly on that possibly i don't know i mean i think that i think that the the hebrew bible is abundantly critical of the priesthood um but so this so this argument would go um is that the you know the earliest textual evidence kind of points more toward um an understanding of this as a priestly figure and for me as like kind of with that reading in mind, I still have no problem with also the passage being used to give us a, some insight into the satanic fall, because I think that they probably correspond in a very similar way. Yeah, I, completely right? so I don't agree. have a problem with, I think that I, I don't have a problem with what I think is interesting about that particular, you know, uh -huh. work of interpretation is like, you know, I think it can be compatible with other readings as well. I think it's a good reading. Yeah. Um, is it the only reading of that text? By no means, right? I, I don't, but I don't think most most biblical texts, there's only one way to read them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it, yeah, it works yeah, as a pattern, fractally, all the, mm -hmm. all the way up, all the way down. I completely agree, because it's like uh, Lucifer is the light bringer, and that's what the priest is in a way right. he's supposed to bring the light the, the christian tradition and the apocalyptic literature treats it that way so i mean they're yeah. also reading it in, in that way too so it's not like there's i, I the, probably what it speaks to is that the there's the edenic fall the priestly fall and the satanic fall are all in a sense rhyming right yeah there's a rhyme to them yeah, yeah. it's like uh the king of tyre like you said that's an office that's a like that's describing an office, like not necessarily. I mean, it is. You could apply it to a specific person, but it's describing an office, so it's like it's a heavenly position um, that, mm -hmm. that doesn't fade away. And so it's the same thing. Like the other part that's always ascribed to Lucifer, Satan, is the one that says Lucifer in Isaiah fourteen. And if you read that, it's like there's, it's strikingly similar to the Eden story, where it says 
mm-hmm. you have said in your heart, I will be like God. And that's exactly what the serpent in the garden will says to them when they take the fruit. So it's like, it's the right. same, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, it is, it is Adam. It is Lucifer. It's, it's all those. And the, is it's like a judgment that's pronounced on uh, the one inhabiting that office if they do this. So it's like whoever's, um, yeah, it's really, I don't know. It's fascinating. I think it's why, I mean, I just feel like at least in, in our little signal group, sometimes we quote this, but uh, I think it's Luke Thompson that says it a lot, like Christ and Antichrist are like a hair's breadth away. And I know that probably sounds bad to a lot of people, but it's like you're, when you're sitting up in the heavens, it's like, it's an easy slip to uh, when you're, you're the light bringer, when God's assigned you that office, like Christ is the light of the world. You are the light of the world. It's like, well, then it's easy to think, okay, well, then I'm the light of the world. I'm God now or something. And then it's like, as soon as you make that slip, how you're, then it's like, now you hear the words, how you're falling from heaven. <laughs> oh, Lucifer. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. I think they apply to both for sure. And the, yeah, the description in Ezekiel is like, yeah, it's a, I, it growing up. Um, so this is what I always heard growing up is that, uh, the devil was a worship lead, leader. That's like the only thing I would ever hear about that, that passage. I don't know if you guys ever heard this, but it was always the devil was, uh, Satan was God's, uh, the, the leader in his choir, his heavenly choir, because it was, which I don't think is like, that's an interesting way to take it too. But the reason was because it says your pipes and your timbrels. And then when you actually look at the Hebrew for it, it's like your sockets is what those should be translated for like setting gems. And then it lists all the gems, the gemstones like you're talking about that are the, like the same ones. He's, in the just described as a, he's described as a, as a cherub. Mm-hmm. Right? And yeah. in the ancient world, the cherubs function at a very specific function, right? We think of cherubim as like, you know, fat, portly little diaper angels. Right. But um, in, in the, there probably would more approximate a gargoyle, you know, like, or a centaur. They're, they're mixed, they're species that are mixed, it's like a mixed species, and they are specifically set in place to guard sacred space, right? So the cherubim are set outside of Eden with flaming swords, right? They're, they're, they're guardians of sacred space. And so, and they're in the Holy of Holies, Yeah. depending on, you know, depending on what period, you know, if you're in the tabernacle period, you have two cherubim because you have the two on the ark. If you're in the Solomonic temple, you also have cherubim in the Holy of Holies. So you have four cherubim, right? And so like. They surround um, the, mercy, the mercy seat, right? So the, you know, and so you see that same repeating of the four in the Revelation four and five text with the four beasts around the throne. They're cherubs. It doesn't mean that they don't, their, their function is to behold the glory of God, to reflect the creation, mm-hmm. the diversity in creation. Um, but they're also, they have a function of guarding sacred space. Association with the worship leader is an interesting one. I, I'm curious on just to try to trace the lineage of that. I wonder if there's other things that occur. Again, this is evoking Tolkien for me, where you have this image of the primordial angelic figures in a choir, mm-hmm. and and the, the evil one is the one that is trying to make these discordant notes that yeah. end yeah. up contributing to the harmony. Yeah. That's that's the only association I have 
I, I like that. I mean, I like the association. I think it's a cool one too, because then you get into, uh, when you think of it that way, it's like, there's this song of creation going on. It's like, that's the song of songs in the Bible. And so you have all these angelic beings yeah. singing that song. And then you have the one that uh, tries to disrupt that, um, that pattern of creation in that song. Yeah. Yeah. I think probably the only way that I would bristle against that is like coming out of like the evangelical tradition I did is like the, the idea of the worship leader is kind of the guy who's on the stage with the guitar. Yeah. That's you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh -huh. And like, I, I think that the, um, the picture of Lucifer pre-fallen or post-fallen is a, uh, you know, is a, an incredibly powerful, radiant or dark force in, in the cosmos because of the proximity to the divine presence and uh you know and the, the the initial function if he's a cherub he's there to basically gatekeep and be a guardian of that sacred space mm -hmm. um, and so if you think of like a cherub falling out of its function it's a treasonous act uh you know and so it's you know it's it's a the, the fall was a fairly treacherous event mm -hmm. I wonder what you guys think, based on what you just said, Jed, it makes me curious, what is a, what is an appropriate vision for us to have for what the character of Lucifer is like, or if it, if it even is appropriate to, to have think, that character as one in our... I, I mean, I, I can only speak to my own opinion on this. I, I wouldn't yeah. necessarily say, like, this is the way it has to be viewed. Um, like, I think that, you know, we're, we're cautioned against like reviling angelic authorities, um, whether they, uh, be hostile or benevolent. Um, my sense is that, that, that whatever Lucifer is at present, his true created state, how he was intended was something of, of, you know, rather radiant and a rather radiant and glorious being. Right. And I don't think that that has been even wholly effaced from him. Right. And so there is a sense where, you know, he takes that beauty and he, he perverts it in a seductive way, but it's still beautiful. Right. There's still a beauty to it. There's still a grandeur and a kind of a dark anti-majesty. Right. Just like, an, you know, just like an antichrist would be so similar to Christ. There's a, there's a, there's a majestic element to that, but it's also quite dangerous because it can um, it can appear one way, but in in its inner depths um, can be quite poisonous and toxic. And and I think like Tolkien's metaphors and Tolkien's work kind of points to that in kind of the the initial Dark Lord. Like his intentions were good. Like you know his ten intentions were good. It's just the way he went about things led him further and further away from from god and then ultimately um his his desire to do good for creation it was actually the means through which he did incredible damage to it right? and so um you know i, I try not to like try to probe into the deep things of satan or anything like that but um it you know it reminds me of like a, a broken mirror right okay yeah, so going off that, I, I might have some 
questions uh, that could maybe even lead into this idea of like whether or not Satan could be redeemed or no. I don't know if we'd have to talk about other things first, but um, I might have to say say something first before I can get to my question. So when you asked the question, Craig, uh, how would you perceive Satan? I used to uh, say, like, if I ever want to look at Satan, I should just look in the mirror, which I know is probably not helpful. And it's probably not good for most people to hear. But it kind of like as in, as in referencing maybe the worship of self or something. Because from what I understand, I think that's what Satanism is, is worshiping yourself. So it is kind of that broken mirror, like Jed talks about. Like you, uh, you're, you're looking in the mirror, but it's all broken. And if, if it's just yourself, you can't see all the, the other people you should be looking at or something. Um, and I don't know that it's necessarily like just a narcissist. I guess maybe it could be. Um, but if... Okay, so I guess my first question, I don't know if Jed's still listening, it's kind of one for him too, but if uh, if that I'm is... I'm still listening, Okay. on food. <laughs> okay, all right. If that is, if that is kind of a, an all right, if that's a correct way of looking at it, um, uh, what, is that redeemable in nature? Like, is that, I, I don't under, I guess I'm trying to even think of how to phrase my question now, I guess. Um, because it seems like something like that is almost necessary for I don't know how to phrase this self-identity or something uh but it, it's it almost seems like a fall um and I I'm okay with saying that the fall and I think you said this before Jed too that I'm okay with saying the fall is good because it's kind of like you find you find yourself outside of God's identity uh so like you find individuality within the multiplicity in that or something. It's like something like that sort of happens. I don't I know if that's true. Kind of like, yeah, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that the fall was good. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't ascribe like the force of like metaphysical necessity to the fall. But I think freedom makes it an inevitability. Okay. That's a better right. way to phrase and it. So, sure. um, the, that like so saint Irenaeus describes the fall as kind of having a instructive or pedagogical function right so we enter we we leave this we leave the the gates of eden and we enter in east of eden into the school of righteousness um and we learn that through our encounter with the unrighteousness of the world right in a in a, a creation that is now fallen um yeah i mean you know, this was, this was always, you know, in, in the historic arguments around universalism, like the, you know, there was always some sort of controversy around, well, if you're, if you push universalism to its, you know, its full conclusion, like to its fullest implications, then you're going to have to say that there is a redemption of Satan at some point. Right. And so, um, and I actually do agree with that. I think that, um, the to say that Satan would at some point not be redeemed would be to leave some remainder of creation that will be forever diabolized, even if that's just Satan himself, which would represent to me a certain kind of failure for God to bring about the ultimate good of creation in all things. Um, so I don't have a problem with the concept of, of the eventual, you know, reconciliation of, of Satan, but I mean, you'll have to you know, he'll have to repay his debt down to the, down to the uttermost farthing, right. To, to the last cent because of the damage he's done in creation. 
Um, so his redemptive path would probably be a, a long and arduous one um, that may last as long as the universe itself. <laughs> you know, like it, it may take that long. Um, but I, I do think that there is a redemption even there. Um, the mechanism, I think, is the same mechanism that is the redemption of human beings, right? I think that the, the whole of creation is redeemed in Christ. And to a, to a sense, in a certain sense, even the angels are defectible, right? They're still described as the holy ones, just like the saints on earth are described as the holy ones, right? Um, are we that holy, practically speaking? Well, not always, right? I mean, we know that, but Paul would, you know, if Paul was writing a letter to us today, you know, to the saints at Almond Tree, right? You know, we'd have to, that, that we never say that about ourselves or about Christians without a, a certain sense of irony, um, because we know, you know, as mortal beings, we we struggle with morality in, in very profound ways. Um, the manner in which that plays itself out in the angelic world, I couldn't say with any with any certainty as far as what the mechanisms are of, you know, you know, moral fall and moral redemption and, and those kinds of things. I don't know how that would work, except to say that, like, um, you know, I, I don't have a problem with that, at least conceptually, that, you know, um, you know, perfection is something that is, uh, is, readily it, it it belongs to god the the divine perfection belongs to god and um but beings finite beings have to be perfected right and so um that doesn't mean that like um you know the angels who have devoted themselves in service to god are don't have a certain kind of moral impeccability to them but i just would say that they're probably not infallible Right. So we don't worship angels um, in those kinds of things. They're they're created beings like us. So um, I would suspect that as created beings, they, they have similar vulnerabilities, even outside of the strictures of the mortality. You know, there is a very unsavory, but beautiful implication of the idea that Satan would be redeemed because if he's going to be redeemed <clears throat> completely, restored completely, you, know, you could imagine him as again this kind of day star, you know, this shining one again, mm -hmm. which I think evokes a kind of visceral disgust reaction from some people. But I, I'm not. I'm wonder. I wonder what you think about it. It's beautiful to me, and I feel like it, it harmonizes with uh, with the story of. Saul becoming Paul, where this you know the, the, this adversary becomes the herald. Mm -hmm. I think you know that it, like I guess the place that my mind goes is like, what would it look because like not only would would Satan have to be you know in in returning to Lucifer and becoming and being restored to the light bearer, like would not only have to experience divine forgiveness of so being forgiven of his sins and his crimes against God, but also have to be embraced by the very creation that he had damaged. Right. Yeah. So like the, the totalizing effect of a, of a redemption on that level is somewhat terrifying to me because of what that would actually entail. Like what kind what does that process look like? 
is um, that's, I mean, because I mean, where we sit now, like kind of in a sense, in a world under, you know, satanic control in a sense, right, is we, we live under the weight of his crimes, right? And we suffer and we languish under that. And then we want justice. And like, so I think that that side of it, like, it's very hard to imagine some far end of creation where all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're cool. Because <laughs> you know? it's like, we can't say that now, you know? And um, so the enmity is still very much present, um, you know, but I, I think that we're, we're called to contend with our enemies without hatred, right? Like, um, I, I think that the, you know, the outrage of, of the crimes that Satan and those who have willfully served him have, have perpetrated on humanity are horrendous. Um, but they, gosh, they can, they can take that hatred that we feel toward them and that resentment and twist that in all kinds of different ways. Um, so I don't think that like our cries for justice are inappropriate. I don't think that our um, sense of there needs to be some sort of retribution. I think that that's wholly appropriate. Um, but again, it's like, that's where I still think it's wisest to approach those issues from a Christian perspective of vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, right? Because he's in a position where he can do so with wisdom and to bring about real justice. This is, this is, go ahead, Jason. No, you go, go. I'm probably going to okay. just like, once I start talking, I might just go for a while, so I don't know. <laughs> so this is, this is a question. So, Jed, I have the impression uh, from last time we, we spoke and something you said here too, that uh, Bulgakov is a really big part of your your way of seeing the world, and you mentioned retribution. I wonder how retribution fits into uh, a universalist way of seeing the world. Because I, I mean, may, maybe I'm incorrect. Um, Bulgakov is uh, fiercely universalist. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think like there's a like I straddle some some interesting lines in universalist thought. Um, I I don't look at hell as necessarily like you know an eternal torture chamber or anything of the sort. Um, but I think that like if we're looking at the biblical principle of justice, talionic justice, so the lex talionis of like an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth kind of justice, uh, would be called like the law of equal measure. So the older codes prior to the Mosaic code that calls for like a principle of retribution is the retribution must always be proportionate to the crime. If you go into like Hammurabi's law code, like, you know, um, you know, if you're, if your ox gore somebody, like you're going to be liable for a certain amount, like up to death. But then like, if your ox continues to gore and like kill people, they'll kill your whole family. That's the, that's the punishment, right? So it's not proportionate to the crime. Right. So I do think that there is a place for retribution that's proportionate to the crime, even though the overall picture of justice is restorative, like there needs to be proper recompense for the crime committed. Right. And so I think like when you think about like the, the, the magnitude of the satanic fall, like there's good, that proportional justice, those proportions are, are terrifying. 
you know, and our participation in that, you know, that's why we cast ourselves on Christ's mercy is because like in some degree, we're all implicated in that to one degree or another. Like none of us are that great, you know, um, we're implicated in that same, that same reality. So I, while I do think mercy is always at play for all of God's creatures. Like I also think justice is worth trembling before. Right. And so, um, I think like any sort of, um, any sort of final reconciliation will also be ultimately fair, right? It's not, it's not like anybody's getting away with anything. So, yeah, but I don't, so I don't have a problem with certain measures of retribution and, and neither would Bulgakov, you know, or like a great, you know, like you can read some of George McDonald's universalist sermons, like his, his picture of ultimate reconciliation is really an excruciating one because like of all the things you have to come to grips with in your journey toward union with God, you have to come to grips with yourself. You will never yeah. escape yourself. You yeah. have to come to grips with who God created you to be. And, and that process, if you're resisting God's love, you could, you know, in at least in, in um, McDonald's imagination could take just an inordinate amount of time. Yeah. That, that, that is recalling to me the image of you know, like piercing the veil, like that, that place of suffering mm -hmm. that you, you have to enter through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. this is and Christ takes that, all of that dereliction upon himself so that none of it would ultimately destroy his creatures. making a lot of faces sorry i completely agree i just uh it's just incredibly fascinating and um uh it's like terribly complex and extremely simple at the same time it seems to me in my head but uh because it's just uh, the the one the one hiccup where i have i think it goes back to craig's original question is with L lucifer if i think of satan as an angelic being as a fallen fallen angel I can easily see his redemption easily. But if I think of him as like the essence of self-worship or something like that, I don't necessarily mm -hmm. know how that could be reconciled or redeemed because that seems so contrary to love in a way, unless, but uh, that's what I mean. If it's, if he's just a, or maybe where there's, maybe I'm getting hung up and like, there's some sort of like dualism in my mind where like those two are kind of, connected like the self worship is kind of like some weird self love and it's just perverted and once it's reconciled it will work properly or something mm -hmm. and then work in a in a way with create in a proper way with creation um maybe that's what it is but the whole thing with the the angels the fallen angels receiving mercy i think I'm totally on board with because it just uh there's this idea well i mean it's in the scripture but also i think in the book of enoch too where the angels are just curious about man they'll just they're like what is man like what is this what is this little worm you've created this little maggot down here that has to suffer and it's like what are you working in this creature and then through the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor christ receives a better name than the angels and then it says in corinthians don't you know that you're going to judge angels and it's like they're curious about this creation because God's creating merciful creatures 
because in this life of suffering, it's like our eyes are open to see how much we need the love of God and mercy. And so through that in us, we'll be able to pour that out even upon angels, even upon, upon fallen angels. Um, and I think the torment is something like, like you're talking about coming to terms with that. Like if you, I mean, because I, this is an example, I think we probably just use too often and I use it way too often too, but you could think of Hitler too. It's like, I could forgive Hitler, but what good does that do? Like, I don't have his forgiveness necessarily. If he had to go through the line of every single face that he had harmed and had to ask forgiveness and they had to forgive him. It's like, there's a certain type of torment in all of that where it's like, like, I think you're, it's like having to wrestle with yourself and the things you did is like having to, to uh, go through that. Mm -hmm. I don't, it's like, it's like, it feels like maybe to some people I might be reducing the fire, but I'm like, that's, that's a, if you resist that, you're going to be in torment anyways. And then to actually engage in that is almost torment in itself. So it's like, you kind of have to go through the fire either way. And then the longer you resist it, the longer you're just going to stay in this eternal fire until you turn to it. And then it's like, okay, let's, let's go through the fire then and get, and get into this Holy of Holies or something like that. Um, yeah. That's why we want to go through that as much of the purgation on this side of things. Yeah. And we go through the refiner's fire on this side, but I mean, I, I, I in a, in a, in an unironic sense, I am an annihilationist as well. I just don't think any being gets annihilated. Yeah. But Satan gets annihilated. He just, in his annihilation is his redemption and his return to his original and final state. Right. Yeah, and so to put it in Hegelian terms, the negation has to get negated. Right. And so like he is going to like, um, you know, like whatever hell is, at least in my mind, it is the progressive annihilation of evil. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Because it's like and if so, Satan... Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah, if yeah, Satan actually the judgment had to... Texts are too, the, the judgment texts in the Bible are too... There's too much destruction in those texts to fully eliminate the fact that there is a real destruction that takes place, mm -hmm. right? So it's not like... Um, you know, the universalist perspective is somehow light on this stuff, you know, it, it's, and in some ways it's so like, have you guys read uh, the Inferno? So Dante's Inferno, one of the curious of things, one of the curious things in the Inferno is nobody in the Inferno ever asked to get out, which is interesting, <laughs> right? Is there is a, while they are in torment, there's almost a placid resignation. So one of the interesting things, there's a great book by um, a literary scholar in the 20th century named Eric Auerbach. And he writes a book called Dante, the, the poet of the modern world, right? And so he's he, he does this profound analysis of what, in a sense, what Dante's doing is he is, he's making the earthly and temporal existence just stretches on into eternity. So whatever you are at death, you are, you are, um, it's, it's, he says it basically gives rise to the West's highly individualistic consciousness, right? So Dante is a signifier of that shift into like this sense of being the everlasting individual. 
Um, and even if you're, you have to be that everlasting individual in hell, you will be that kind of thing. Right. Um, but that's, I don't think that, you know, while that's an interesting thing to study in terms of the history and development of thought in the West, I don't think that that's the picture that is actually being presented to us in the judgment metaphor and imageries in scripture. Right. Um, and, um, so, you know, I don't think that like the, the thing about the universalist picture, that's actually maybe a little bit more terrifying than Dante is you in, in Dante's Inferno, there's a placid resignation to their estate, right? I'm damned and I'm just going to be damned forever. So there's no, there's no need to improve. There's no need to grow out of the circle of hell that you find yourself in. Right. Um, and the universalist picture is no, you will not ever escape who you were actually made to be. And so until you have become that, you are going to feel the fire. Yeah. And so you have a, like, there is a, there is a, uh, a creaturely response that is always held out to us that either we're going to move toward redemption or away from it, but you can never stay in the middle for any protracted period of time. So you're just not going to escape yourself and who God made you to be. This is uh, it's kind of reminding me of, um, yeah, it's interesting that I think the more I have personally embraced universalism, the more hell became more real. And you actually, I feel like the more I actually had to wrestle with it because before it's like, kind of get out of jail free card and the more i embrace universalism it's like no you kind of uh you all have to go through the fire and it's like and it, and it becomes a lot more real but when you were talking it reminded me of a gosh this verse in the bible and i was talking with cal and this other guy peter the other day and peter brought it up because we were talking about 23 minutes of hell are you guys familiar with that book at all it's this guy who said he familiar. it's kind of like i guess he had an out-of-body experience and he went to hell for like 23 minutes and he experienced all this stuff but there was a part in there where i guess like people were asking him questions and they were like, so you saw people down there and their flesh was burning off of them and it just melted off of them. And then, and it just eternally did this. And they were like, and he was like, yeah. And they were like, well, what did the flesh just reappear then melt off again? And he was like, yeah. And I was just like, and then when Peter brought it up, I was like, you know, that's actually a verse in Zechariah where it's like their flesh will dissolve while they stand on their feet and stuff like that. And I'm like, there's this, uh, I don't know why, just when you were talking, it reminded me of that, of just like this, um, you're not when you're talking about even if you're in that state uh in hell in kind of this torment state because that reminds me of something you'd probably read in dante or something like that but it's not a resignation to be there it's like you have to uh it's like that is a redemptive process in a way or something or trying to get you to turn i guess back to i don't know what i'm getting at now it's just popped in my head but there is this thing Sorry, go I ahead. could tell you guys about a kind of, um, kind of like I had an experience of hell. Oh man! Um, you would think it would have had more of a change on me at the time than it did. <laughs> but it, um, so um, I, you know, I, I struggle with bipolar disorder, and so um, have had uh, some serious substance abuse problems in in the past. Like, um, and a lot of times it wasn't like persistent substance abuse there were times where that was the case but um, when I was in my 20s I just partied really hard you know that was what I did um so I was out partying one night um with friends and had been drinking heavily and then blacked out and evidently had gone and done a bunch of drugs 
um, somewhere. I don't even remember. Like I don't, I still, you know, still have a, a very vivid memory of the, the circumstances that gave rise to the experience. Um, but I, uh, I ended up in the hospital. Right. And, um, and I, uh, like I, I went to hell. I was in hell, like literally probably like the experience I like, so I was, it took me about four or five hours to come back into consciousness. Right. I felt like I was gone for a very, very long time, like much longer than that. Like it, in a sense, it felt like ages kind of thing. Um, but I found myself kind of sinking down into this deep pit. Right. And, um, and I kind of fell through the pit and I just fell into like empty space. So think of empty space, cosmos, you know, stars, nebulas, galaxies, all that kind of stuff. And, um, I felt utterly alone in the universe. Like the only thing I could be aware of, even with seeing everything in front, in front of me, all this beautiful stuff, I was totally detached from it. So I'm in front of this very beautiful reality. And then I'm totally alone. Right. And then it would shift and I'd be in, in the company of people like family members, people I loved and, and the same thing, totally isolated, totally alone, um, even in the company of others. And, you know, then I, I kind of went into a, you know, a kind of a sense of replay of my life to that point. And just remember like, um, like the, there's like kind of a voice that just kept reverberating in my head was I didn't save you to live like this. And I, I remember like the sense of just like agony and the, the utter dislocation and distance um, that I felt within myself from God and from everything while having some sort of awareness that they're still out there. And um, I mean, it did have a profound effect on me, but I mean, I still, you know, live with the reality of mental illness. So it wasn't like everything cleaned up all at once or anything like that, but it was a, it was a, an important experience um and i think like probably very reflective of just kind of the inner conflicts that i was already feeling within myself at that period in my life anyway um but it was very much i felt like um it, it did there was a sense of burning in that experience but it wasn't like a hot fire or anything like that but it was this sense of like uh just this gnawing deep sense of like regret that you could not I couldn't remove myself from that. Um, and um, my experience of like coming, when I finally came awake, it was because I felt like I was being pulled out, right, out of this pit. And then I'm like awake and my family members are there and that kind of stuff. Very embarrassing experience, honestly. Um, but um, yeah, I've, I've had those kind of experiences. They're they're terrifying and it, it's... And like, while I don't remember the circumstances of that night, I can recall that experience, you know, it's like almost total recall. I can go back into that. Um, and it was very much the experience of how it was terrifying. Right. And I think at least one aspect, I don't think it's the total reality of what that experience might be, but it, it showed me like the, you know, if it retrospectively from the perspective of this was almost, gosh, this was getting close to 20 years ago 
right? So it's quite some time ago, but retrospectively, it, it, it makes me think of just like what the true cost of an egocentric life and an egocentric existence is. Cause I was locked within myself. And, um, and so I think like there, you know, that those kinds of destructive and terrifying imagery of, of, you know, of judgment is like, I think that those things are a mercy to us because they tell us to avoid that. Right. They, they teach us to, to move toward love and goodness and mercy. Um, because I think like the, the real experience of like having to come to grips with yourself, um, the more we can embrace that process here, um, the better things look, but yeah, I mean, I still, as a, as a universalist, I probably think more about hell now than like when I was looking at it as the get out of jail free card and I'm totally immune from it. Right. Cause I still that I could very much, I could be there. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's terrifying. That's more terrifying than, than like imagining fire to me or the scripture I quoted. It's the, this, this alone, being alone. That's why I think uh, I would rather burn alive than, I've said this before, I'd rather probably burn alive than drown in the sea. I don't know what that is. Like, I, I can't say that definitively because I've never been set on fire, but like the thought of sinking down, like you're talking about into blackness and darkness in the where sound doesn't reach you, light doesn't reach you, just you're totally alone. Like the bottom of the ocean, just kind of, that sounds absolutely terrifying to me. And that's, mm -hmm. and so universalist is kind of like saying, if it's not all, it's not complete, it's not perfect. Yeah. And there's a, there's something lost still. And there's a, and there's still a, and there's still a little bit of hell in that in a way. Because there's something not not yet redeemed. There's something uh, if you if if your hell is being separated from others and isolated within yourself, then it's like you need all the others to truly be complete in a way. And so you need all of God's yeah. creation. Yeah. Yeah. But that's hard to wrestle with, and that is hard to wrestle with. Like even getting back to the Satan thing, like if Satan could be redeemed, like what does he he actually has to receive forgiveness and reconciliation from the very creation he corrupted. And it's like, that's a hell in itself. I don't know. seems like it. Uh, Craig, you said one time, because I remember you said it, I think you said it kind of as a, you said it as a, a very, as a joke, but I don't think it was a joke. And I thought it was a really good idea. But you said, because we said something about Rob, uh, Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. And you said, I should write it my own book called hell wins and i was like yes you should like i think it would be very similar actually if hell actually won but i don't know if you meant it the same way but it was i thought it was a very interesting point but the fire no, sure. <laughs> no i i mean that jeb that that burning away that destructive aspect of hell that you described uh, when you said that you were an annihilationist but only for satan uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know I, this is something People that talk to me a lot will know, but it seems like that that imagery, you know, of this passing through the furnace, whether it's you know, it's either purgatorial or it's you know, it'll annihilate you. And that seems really, really deeply embedded, uh, you know, in the in the Christian fantasy. It makes me want to. I, I want to grab a poem 
I'm going to go ahead and grab it. Okay. So give me a minute. I'll be back. Okay. Like, I, I won't probably be able to hear it because I got to go into the other room to grab it, but I'll be, I'll be right back with okay. that. Okay. Okay. Is that, I have a question, Craig, too, while he's doing that. Um, is the, the, the purgatorial aspect, so that's even the right way to say it, is that, um, is it, could it be both? Like, can it be annihilation? Because isn't it is the, per okay, yeah. that's what I was thinking. The purgatory aspect is actually annihilating aspects of you into, or something like well, that, or. Well, what, what happens to the thing you put in the fire depends on it, what it is you put in the fire. Uh, yeah. It's either going to burn mm -hmm. up or it's going to be refined. Or, yeah, or made, yeah. Or then the dross is going to be taken off of it. Yeah, that's it. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the imagery in, like, yeah, in the scriptures the whole time. It's like, I'm going to put you through the refiner's fire and get off the dross. And it's like, and I think it even says that in a lot of places, like whatever uh, put through the fire, whatever can withstand the fire is going to come out. And the stuff that can't handle it. And it, I mean, it says like, our God is a consuming fire. That's, that's what says that in Deuteronomy, I think. That's interesting. Say more about yeah, it. Well, it, it, well it's, it seems really substantial that the text is obsessed with the both the burning up aspect of fire, and it really emphasizes that metaphor. But it also emphasizes the, it's obsessed with this image of the fire, where let's say the the objects that can be in the fire and withstand it. You know, like you see that in. And Daniel, and you see it in the burning bush, and you see it like it's, it's all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I'm sorry I missed what you guys were talking about. I hope I'm not. Oh, we were just um, talking about the purgatory aspect of hell being also okay. the, the annihilating aspect as well. That it's all probably right. both. Well, then this fits perfectly. <laughs> nice. Uh, so this comes, uh, and like probably one of the most important. Um, poems I've ever read was is T.S. Eliot's Four Quartets. I don't know if you've read that, but it's uh, it's one of the most challenging and rewarding pieces of literature I've ever read. But this is um, I probably have, I refer to this one a lot, but it's just because it's such a powerful um, it's such a powerful section. It's toward the end of the poem. It's in um, a section called Little Getting, and this is the fourth motion within within that uh, within that work. So it reads this, the dove descending breaks the air with flame of incandescent terror of which the tongues declare the one discharged from sin and air, the only hope or else despair lies in the choice of pyre or pyre to be redeemed from fire by fire. Who then devised the torment? Love. Love is the unfamiliar name behind the hands that wove the intolerable shirt of flame, which human power cannot remove. We only live, only suspire, consumed by either fire or fire. Okay. And so, I mean, it's such a, it, it, that whole, I would recommend that poem to anybody. It takes quite a bit of patience to kind of mine its treasures because it's very difficult. Um, but yeah, like the, like you know the, the hell is the love of god like yeah that meets our unlovingness and how far in our alienation and it's fire yeah you know and so like we're we're redeemed from the fire by fire and i i think that that's actually like signified in pentecost 
right? In Pentecostal fire. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that's, I mean, so the the throne room vision in um, in the Enochic literature, like he, he's in this heavenly holy of holies and the, the curtains look like tongues of fire. Well, that's directly, wow. yeah. directly referenced in the book of Acts with Pentecost is it's those tongues of fire from the Holy of Holies that's descending upon the inhabitants of the world and that they are lit up and they're encountering in a sense, the love of God, the the Holy of Holies presence of God. And so, so they are in a sense redeemed through the fire. Right. And that's right out of first Corinthians as well. First Corinthians chapter three, like everyone's going to pass through the fire and we're going to have our, our works and our, the life and what we've made of our lives is going to be tested with fire. All of us. That's right. That's fascinating. So I don't think it's taking that. Makes me think of the, the, uh, seraphim because the tongue is no fire insurance. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All will be salted by fire. Right. But tongues are often wins, baby. But that's that's how it wins. Yeah. (laughs) There we go. I like it. But, um, I don't know. The tongues of fire reminds me of the seraphim because it's like they're often um, you can sometimes see a, a, a tongue like a serpent, the way it uh, moves and stuff. And I'd never thought of that before. And that's right before even Isaiah when he comes and he sees God on the throne. He says, "There's seraphim," and then the seraphim actually puts a coal in his mouth to purify his tongue, which I never I never connected those before. That's really interesting. Um, but you care if I read this? You've probably read this before, Jed. I guess it's for, it's George MacDonald, but it's kind of very related to the poem you just read and everything sure. we're talking about about love being the fire. It's from his. I still haven't read all of his unspoken sermons, but this is one. I think it was maybe the second chapter, and it was called "Consuming Fire" about God being a okay. consuming fire. Yeah, it says, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Sherry's quoted this before too. But for love, loves unto purity. Love has ever in view the absolute loveliness of that which it beholds where loveliness is incomplete and love cannot love its fill of loving it spends itself to make more lovely that it may love more it strives for perfection even that itself may be perfected not in itself but in its object as it was love that first created humanity so even human love in proportion to its divinity will go on creating the beautiful for its own outpouring There is nothing eternal but that which loves and can be loved, and love is ever climbing towards the consummation when such shall be the universe, imperishable, divine. Therefore, all that is not beautiful in the beloved, all that comes between and is not of love's kind must be destroyed, and our God is a consuming fire. There's that hell wins. (laughs) I don't know. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's it it's uh yeah i don't think that the universalist picture is a is like light on judgment right and, and i don't think that like we have to i actually think it, it enables us to um speak to judgment with a lot more confidence and clarity because we know that the judgment will be just and not like a cartoonish parody of justice, right? It will be like in that, you know, the law of equal measure, like it it will not be disproportionate to the crimes committed. 
right? So a finite crime cannot result in an infinite punishment. But that doesn't mean that a finite crime doesn't have a certain kind of magnitude to it that has to get dealt with. And so, you know, you don't have to, to shy away from the fact that, no, this is something like we should all tremble before. Like, you know, it's not like, you know, it, it was always weird to me that people who um, are, you know, dead set against universalists seem to seem to paint it with this brush, like, hey, this is, you know, you're just kind of glossing over sin. It's like, by no means, you know, is that actually the case? And in fact, I don't know how you get that if hell is everlasting, then in some sense, sin is as well. And, um, and so there's sin that never gets dealt with. That's a deep point. That's a really deep point. You know, so it's like, we're got to deal with this stuff. Like it's going to get dealt with, like it, it will get dealt with in the context of love and graciousness, graciousness and mercy. And it's ultimately for our, you know, our well being. but like, you know, just like an addict, like me having had dealt with, you know, um, you know, some serious substance abuse issues. Like you don't get through that without having to face yourself and coming to grips with what your addiction has done to you and the people you love. Right. Yeah. And so like in a sense, like, you know, yeah, hell is like a hospital or like rehab, but anybody who's ever been to, you know, ever been in, you know, seriously mangled in a car wreck knows how difficult that those, that medical journey is to rehabilitation. Or if you have, you know, if you've fallen into addiction, like how, what, how painful the rehabilitation process is, but it is your process and your path of healing at the same time. Like, and you do get to a point um, in recovery where you don't, it's not a masochistic sense, but you don't want to shortchange yourself from allowing yourself to face reality, right? And so it's like, no, I need to sit with this for a little while so that I make sure that I've learned what I need to learn so that I don't repeat these behaviors. And that can be difficult, but you, you get to a point in the, in the redemptive and the rest, restorative process where you actually embrace that process. Like you fight it at first, you know, like, you know, all your problems are somebody else's fault and somebody... You know, but at the end of the day, your choices are your choices, whatever the context your choices are made in that you had no control over, you still make your choices, you got to deal with that. Right. So for me with my like, with my alcohol problem, right, I had to deal with that. And like, nobody, nobody held a bottle to my mouth and made me drink. Like I was always a volitional act. Right. And, um, you know, it's something that like, we do have to, you to deal with it, like you have to sometimes embrace the painful parts of the healing too, you know? And I think that's the way we all have to, we all have to come to grips with that in ourselves in some way. And so, you know, I think that there is a sense where, um, like my my friend uh, Jordan Wood speaks it, um, because of, he, he has an interesting blend of, um, the metaphysics of Maximus, the confessor, but also uses Maximus to read Hegel. Right. And uh, because they do have similar patterns of thought, even though Maximus is more in an ancient inflection. Right. Um, one of the things he talks about is that like the restoration of all things means the re restoration of time itself, because time is a being, which means that time itself has to get healed. 
So like that sense of like, when I was in the judgment, you know, in my own sense of like having to see my life and to have it play before my eyes and to understand at some level where things went wrong. I think there's an element of, of the judgment that that something like that is in play in judgment, but also there's a sense where we're going to have to go through and repair what was damaged and uh, bring good where evil once was. That's how evil gets negated through the whole system. So it's not like um, at the far end of whatever the, the final restoration of all things is like, that means that time gets redeemed as well. And so the redemption of time is, I think, us coming to grips with our actions. And I don't know how, what the the mechanism of repair is. That's hard for me to, I don't, I wouldn't say I, I claim to understand that, but I do think that, that there is an element of judgment where uh, we either join Christ in seeing how he has repaired that on our behalf and see how his mercy makes those things new or if we've rejected that mercy, we have some responsibility to actually face that and, and make good in, on that on our own. And so I think hell is actually, in a sense, it's the, um, so the picture, the, the if you look in, if you want to go back into Ezekiel, like if you go into Ezekiel 47, um, you get this really interesting picture and it's kind of out of the, um, the Araba traditions, the Sea of Araba, the Dead Sea, right? Very interesting if you do a kind of a study around just that geographic feature within, within the biblical history. Like it's really loaded with a lot of theological significance, but probably nowhere um, in, the, in the Hebrew Bible more so than in Ezekiel, right? And what happens is the, the um, eschatological temple appears and there's these this river that runs from Zion and down the Kidron Valley. And then I believe Kidron Valley, but then the Kidron Valley ultimately terminates in the Dead Sea. And so this stream of fresh water goes into the Dead Sea and it cleans the water. Like, so the dead waters become living. There's some salt that remains, but it's the salt that's useful for, you know, food and all that kind of stuff. But like the picture is like this, this, um, this restoration that is being affected from Zion that is transforming the Dead Sea into a living reality. And like, I actually think that between that, um, the, you see this um, throne room scene in, I think in Daniel seven, right? The river of fire. Well, where's the throne and where, where are these things taking place? Well, you're, you're in Jerusalem. The temple is facing east toward the Dead Sea. Right. So the whole orientation of these visions are taking place with the Dead Sea. So that river of fire is like the Jordan River coming into the sea. So the 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 fiery imagery in Daniel is probably quite complementary with the water image in Ezekiel. And John picks up on that and actually stacks those metaphors in Revelation. And that is the, the lake of fire. Like if you're looking for your geographic marker, now is that literally the lake of fire? I don't know, but I think that at least John's picking up on that imagery. The lake of fire is the is the um, is the laundry room of the cosmos where things get cleaned up and cleansed and washed and made new. Right. So the um, the the way that that works is 
I, hard to say, but the imagery, the biblical imagery, I think is fairly compelling that if we look at the Dead Sea tradition in, in the Hebrew Bible, in the apocalyptic literature, uh, all the way in through the New Testament, like, I don't know what else John would be picturing as the lake of fire. It's just that was a nuclear bomb you just dropped on us. Yeah, yeah that was really, really good. The river of life is the, the fire issuing, the fiery stream issuing from the throne. I do have a question. Is the Dead Sea geographically, is that located near Sodom and Gomorrah where they were? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah are probably submerged somewhere in the Dead that, Sea. The asphalt pits, things like that. Yeah, that's interesting because mm -hmm. then you have the fire associated with the, the sea there as well. Yeah, like you're talking about. Right. The cleansing so, property. Right. It is yeah. a place of, it is, it is, is a painful place, but is a place of rest, restoration. Yeah. And the cosmic, uh, the, the, gosh, what is that? In Revelation, you said the sea of fire is like a cosmic image. Like, I think you get that. If I remember right, you get that in the books of Enoch. Like he goes through these layers mm -hmm. of the cosmos and he sees this, oh, yeah. this great, this great yeah. fire that exists in the, it's like an internal cosmic image of something in the heavens. Yeah. Right. And so like even where you get into the question of the smoke of their torment goes up for the ages of the ages, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what is that smoke? But the what is ever is getting burned off is. Mm -hmm. And so what is what what the saints are rejoicing in there is not the destruction of the wicked, but the destruction of wickedness. Right. And so what is going up is in a sense, it's a it's an offering to God. Yeah. Right. Was being, and so it's 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 just a, a it's a far more intensified experience of restoration and redemption. And so I don't think like when people will say that you know the Book of Revelation is talking about eternal conscious torment, and I'm like you're not reading the biblical image. You're not even reading the biblical imagery correctly in its own terms, because Ezekiel 47 is absolutely influencing the Lake of Fire imagery in John. Like John's using Ezekiel all over the place. There's no way that that's not uh -huh. like he's not picking up on a very dense and layered tradition that's already there already. So that's really interesting. I think that that's what's going on there. That's really cool. Yeah, I've always connected the river of life, of course, and I think a lot of people do that, but I've never connected the the fire imagery as well. That makes a lot. Of yeah, sense. I think like the, the you know Daniel and Ezekiel are like kind of two of the major you know, textual reference that, you know, John picks up time and time again in, oh. in Revelation, right? Yeah, so, that's, that's, that's so much that throne room, that throne room vision, but I mean, where, you know, when John's looking, where's he looking from when he's seeing the sea of fire, you know, Christ's return to earth. Well, where's he returning? He's, you know, like, I think that John is probably well aware of the Mount of Olives tradition that, that he you know, will return to the Mount of Olives because it's coming right out of not only his own words you know, and the angelic witness, but it's out of Malachi. Well, where's the Mount of Olives? What, what is the Eastern Vista of the Mount of Olives? Well, it's the Dead Sea, right? So when he's casting people into the lake of fire, that's where, that's where he's, that's the referent. Now, is that literally going to play out that way in terms of what, I think it's giving us at least the conceptual imagery and a, a, a conceptual framework by, you know, just 
understanding a little bit of the geography of what's at play in, in that literature. Okay, so you said that the Dead Sea is east of the Mount of Olives, right? right. Okay, that's interesting. I'm not sure what to do with that. The yet. Mount of that's Olives, like, so if you're, if you're looking directly from, mm -hmm. directly from, uh, from the Temple Mount, right? Yeah. The, the Holy of Holies is facing east. Okay, yeah. And it's almost in direct view of, like, the Mount of Olives. Uh-huh. Right? So probably that's Gethsemane is probably located very close to where the Mount of Olives is, right? Because in Roman yeah. law, you had to be you had to be crucified where the crime took place. Uh -huh. So wherever he was arrested was probably also very close to where he was crucified. Okay. And so the vision directly from the Holy of Holies looking east, so to the rising sun, is to Calvary. And if you look further east, beyond uh, calvary you're going to look out over i mean your 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 eastward orientation is going to put you right into the dead sea that's really it's just fascinating because it's like the i'm not sure what to do with it yet but you you may have no more than i do so yeah the the garden where jesus is being pressed and he weeps before mm -hmm. he goes to the cross he's being pressed like an olive the garden of gethsemane mm -hmm. was like full of olive trees he's on the mount of mm -hmm. olives um mm -hmm. and then it's like you're saying and what he's going to come back in Zechariah and stand on the Mount of Olives like it's going to be pressing something again then I think it says it's going to be split and divide in half right and one side like you're talking about is to the lake of fire the other side's to Jerusalem the heavenly Jerusalem or something like that mm -hmm. I don't know what to do with all yeah, that I mean, yeah, yeah. like like I think it's all in a constellation of images that yeah, fit yeah. Together. I can't tell exactly how that all fits together but it's like John seems to be crystallizing some key images there. Yeah, yeah. That, like, even if he's not directly referencing them, like, he's certainly aware of it, and it's certainly lingering in the background. So it's like, he knows where Jesus is crucified. He, you know, so the if you're thinking of just some of the geographical markers, like, obviously, a lot of what's happening in, in Revelation is a, is a vision of the throne room, right? But that's corresponding to the earthly Jerusalem. And so um you know there's there's some value in kind of understanding like well when you know john's referring to like the temple in revelation 11 right and the two witnesses who are there like he's he's like there's clearly like a, a geographical element at play there mm -hmm. right yeah now what does the temple mean in the text is it literally the temple on the temple mount is it literally two witnesses you know, those kinds of things. Well, maybe, maybe not, you know, but. Well, it seems uh, to me like it, it, it could be because it seems like even if it's a, even if it's a cosmic image or like a, a heavenly image, those things seem to work fractally all the time. So it could be individuals or multiple individuals, all those sorts of things. Yeah, it's just. I think, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like my answer to that question is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. this is just so really, I think super are, interesting i'm not sure what to do with they them. are kind of you know those are those images come to us with both um a particular and a universal applicability yeah there's just a lot of imagery like kind of that's embedded in there so we sure. are the two witnesses as the witnessing community mm -hmm. we are the two witnesses right and a testimony is established by two witnesses so valid testimony in, in the court of law 
two witnesses, right? That's the function of the witnessing community. And they're the, the place where they are, you know, they're being witnessing unto martyrdom where the Lord was crucified, right? So they're joining him and they're, they're testifying to Christ's redemptive work in history. That's what they're doing. Um, and that's what the, that's what the witnessing community is called to. So that, that those mantles, those prophetic mantles have always been the inheritance of, of the kingdom community, right? Of the church. Um, is there a particularity there too? I leave that open. Of course, I think so. But, you know, does it have to be? Well, no, it could just be symbolic. I, you know, like, but I don't have a problem, you know, um, you know, allowing ourselves to kind of see ourselves in those characters. I think we should. I think we should see ourselves in all the biblical characters, right? And in some way they are connected to us and we're connected to them. And so, yeah, I mean, those, those concepts I think are supposed to awaken into us like a, a sense of um, the importance that, you know, that our lives have to God and, and the potential that they have to advance the interests of his kingdom. If you choose to. This stuff is great. This, I think it's great. It's fascinating. Craig, what are you going to say? I agree. I think this is probably a really good place to start winding down. Yeah. There's a, the witnesses, uh, I don't know if I really there's a there's a bunch of other stuff like we just I, I wanted to bring up that we didn't get to, to really dig into I guess as much but uh I'm definitely gonna be chewing on all this yeah for sure the Mount of Olive things so that's gonna that's gonna get me because you even have that in that's what I mean these images are stacking now for me because there's the whole image of when Absalom is trying to take over Jerusalem David has to leave and go across the Jordan and it says he goes up he ascends the Mount of Olives weeping and he goes barefoot. And I'm always like, what is this? What's going on here? But it seems to be like, it's probably connected to all that other imagery as well. Um, mm -hmm. It's really, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's too much to chew on right now. I can't, I don't know what I'm doing. It's a lot. <laughs> I do want to do Maybe, maybe we can there's come back to yeah. yeah, there's a lot there to unpack. Maybe we can come back to that passage. I can... I can share with you a few other things that I've picked yeah. up on that one throughout the years. So yeah, that'd be cool. Um, and dig into the two witnesses as well. Another thing in Revelation that was earlier on in the in in the garments of skin when we were talking about too, I'd like to revisit was uh the colors, all the gemstones, and then the colors of uh within the walls around Jerusalem and the colors of the rainbow that surrounds God's throne, all this stuff is like I'd like to hit that again, see what you guys think. There's a lot there. <laughs> yeah i don't know if i'm right but i think i'm on the right track let's just put it that way <laughs> but um i do think there's a lot there but yeah this has been a lot of fun guys i've, I've enjoyed this very much um, yeah one of, one of the most fun parts i think about meeting new people is uh, kind of translating their worldview onto yours and getting to try their pants on a little bit so it was really cool to hear more about the way you see things Jim. yeah yeah, I, I tend to look at, well, I always want to find the, the, the farthest end of the envelope of how far I can push the thought, you know, so like if I seem out there, it's only because I am. <laughs> well, I, but I think, I think there's some sense to being out there too, you know. That's but, a good instinct. 
So anyway, but yeah, guys, it was awesome. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, so. thank you so much for doing this. Maybe maybe eventually we'll get to the Chalkers and Seven Heavens again at some point. <laughs> well, we'll get there. Some I don't know. It's too much. But all right. Well, yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks for doing this. I can um. Oh, I can send you the the video too, Jed, and you can throw it on your. Oh yeah. If you want yeah. Whatever, so. I'm, I've been so slow on all that stuff on my end. Like obviously, kind of with the stuff I got going on. Um, yeah. But. All right. Well, yeah, yeah, it's no, no rush at all. I mean, just if you want it. Okay. So, okay. But yeah, yeah I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Well, thanks guys. You guys both have a great night. All right. You, you too. too. Take care. All right. See I'll you talk guys. to you soon. See ya. Bye.